Skip Phillips is the owner of Pie Tapes Texas LLC, a company based in Tyler that was first started in California in 1944 by his grandfather. But more than that, Skip Phillips was the designer and architect of award-winning pools around the globe. In this episode, we discuss his grandfather's invention, how he went from working on the factory floor to becoming the most influential pole designer of his time, and buying back his family business. Please join me as we go and meet Skip Phillips. But first, if you enjoy the stories on this channel and you want to help them to reach more people, please like and subscribe. All right, so uh, today I'm interviewing Skip Phillips. He's a uh, owner of Pie Tapes in uh, Tyler, Texas. I'll uh, let him kind of introduce himself, and then we'll go from there. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, as you said, it's uh, my name's Skip Phillips. Uh, we uh, relocated fairly recently from California, moved the company uh, Pie Tape uh, from there to Texas, and. For your viewers, we didn't bring any of the garbage from California with us. We <laughs> were trying to get away from it, but um, but anyway, um, yeah, that company started in 1944 in San Diego, um, where my grandfather was working for solar turbines, and uh, he, he developed a uh, process that would enable him to get accurate diameter measurements by using the circumference instead of calipers on the exhaust manifolds for the fighter planes. And uh, it was interesting because he had a uh, ninth grade education and taught himself trigonometry and calculus in order uh, to be able to do that. But uh, as that measuring tape um, uh, progressed, he ended up breaking away from solar and uh, moved it into his garage actually in San Diego and uh, later on, uh, my father, who uh, was a retiring calibration technician for General Dynamics, um, he marries, uh, Norman Collins was my um, step-grandfather, I would say, uh, marries his daughter. And uh, so they, they teamed up on the company, and uh, I started working in that company in the, in the 60s. So we had a kind of a long history with that and then took a sabbatical and uh, got involved in the pool industry. Yeah. So uh, your grandfather, like, how well did you know him, really? Well, I don't know that anybody really knew Norman Collins very well. He wasn't uh, a people person, but really an interesting character. He, he had an extensive background in history and archaeology. He actually went into Mexico in the 30s and dug up ruins and had uh, artifacts that he had um, procured. Uh, but he, he was uh, probably technically genius level, yeah. but he wasn't a people person. Yeah, just sort of a silent sort of person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, had a, he, had, he had a wit to him, but he knew a lot about um, collecting coins and stamps and uh, had... You know, this is, you know, quite a while back, and he had, uh, you know, guns and ammo. He he had a pretty diverse. He played organ almost professionally. Uh, <laughs> he did he did a lot of interesting things. Sort of just a jack of all trades kind of guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Mary, my step grandmother, just really a sweetheart. Uh, just very very nice people. 
Yeah. So was it just general interest that kind of drove him to educate himself on all this? Like you're saying he's going on archaeological adventures? <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. They traveled <coughs> extensively and... Um, he he was he was very very smart. And that's really the sad part I think about losing some of that generation. You know, the greatest generation yeah. is is that you don't just lose their um, drive that that enabled them to do incredible things, but all those talents. You know, all the knowledge they accumulated. You know, yeah. you lose all that too. But uh, really, really great people. Yeah. No, it's it's interesting, kind of the people of that generation. Which my my grandfather, which he would have probably been a good deal younger than him, but sort of still that era. I'm trying to think when he would have been really involved in stuff was probably 50s and 60s. But I mean, he's sort of the same way. Has very little education. Uh, grew up as a child as a squatter and stuff, but he you know went in the military and got education there but also just super self-motivated self-taught kind mm -hmm. of guy ended up with like four patents and stuff and, and i've met people who worked for bell helicopter old guys same sort of thing where it's this weird I, i'm not really weird but something you don't really see now where it's so much you got to get this education in order to go and do something it's like they wanted to teach themselves <laughs> how to go do something like that. Uh, there was a, a lot of innovation going on at the w end of World War II, uh, the Skunk Works and Lockheed, you know, where they kind of uh, broke away from the system and they developed incredible aircraft. And then, and then in the 50s, when my dad was working at Edwards on the booster uh, systems for the Atlas missile, uh, that was the right stuff times. You know, that's when they were working on and Gemini and and all those things. I I remember where we lived in Barstow, uh, the X fifteen when they were testing it would break the windows and <laughs> uh, Barstow. So, um, yeah, I'm not I'm not certain that there's the the work ethic and innovation um, that made that generation successful. I'm not so sure that exists right now, or it's not as prevalent. I think yeah. right now. I want I wondered. I wonder what that is, because I, I feel like there's got to still be, and, and I still do meet people who are very creative, self-motivated, but what what it was about that time, whether it's just coming out of the Depression and the hard times out of that, and people just trying to do whatever they could to move forward out of that, but I wonder what that is and if we could kind of capture that again. <laughs> well, I think... Um... World War II probably had a lot to do with it because as a community, you know, as a country, uh, there was that common bond uh, where you had a, a focus. And um, un that's an unfortunate side effect of uh, conflict. Yeah. You know, um, nobody wants the conflict, but it did create uh, a bonding mechanism where the entire country really was pulling together. And, and uh, his innovation occurred towards the tail end of that. Yeah. Yeah. So let's go back to you. So, uh, you know, you're, you're working for the company, uh, in, in high school and stuff. So 
where, where do you go from there? What's the next step for you? Well, I was working uh, at the tool company, and um, and then my father uh, came to me one day, and he says, hey, I want you to go clean your grandmother's pool. Now, I had no idea why I would do that. I had no idea what I was doing, but I, I did. I went down, and I found the tools, and I managed to uh, clean the pool without blowing the filter up or anything like that. <laughs> And then he tells me, he goes, well, I bought a service company, um, pool service company. Mm -hmm. And he goes, how would you like to work in that? Which, which, um, my brother was, was also probably mechanically genius level. He was blood related to Norman Collins. Uh, he actually rebuilt an automatic transmission looking at a manual when he was 13 years old. So the, the tool company was probably a really good fit, uh, for Dean, but, um, for me, the the concept that I'd be driving around in a little pickup truck wearing cutoffs and out in the <laughs> sun uh, was a lot better than being in a temperature-controlled room breathing lacquer thinner. So um, I thought that was a great idea. And so in 75, uh, I started uh, with that company, and we built it up to uh, three retail stores, and we were doing uh, 1,100 pools a week on pool service. So I got a chance to... Um, you know, learn how to run retail stores, learn about the parts, um, ended up doing repairs. And then um, I made the decision that I wanted to build pools. And uh, so I told my dad, I, I want to create my own company. I want to I want to build pools. And he says, well, don't you have to know something about that? I said, well, apparently not. Uh, based on what I see out there, there's uh, very little mechanical aptitude you know, you can actually have a system that fails to meet any known standard and um, you you claim the design even though you didn't do it and you can get a design award for that. Yeah. <laughs> and he says, uh, you're not serious. And I said, no, no, I'm serious. So um, the uh, in California, you have to have a contractor's license, unlike here in Texas, uh, to design or to build pools. So... I uh, went and went to a school uh, because there was no design and construction education. All you did was you tried to go to a school that would teach you how to pass the test. And so I went into the first one and I said, I want to um, go to the school and take the C-53 test. And they said, well, do you have the four years experience? Do you have letters of recommendation and all the things that are required? I hadn't thought about that part. And obviously, I didn't have any of that. I'd never built a pool. And uh, actually, I'd never seen one built. Um, so by the time I exhausted all my options, there was one school left. It was uh, above the post office, smoky room. And I go up to the counter. And I said, I want to uh, take the C-53 test. And he starts out, well, do you? He got like that far. Do you? And I said, look. I'll get the letters of recommendation, I'll pay you cash, and I'll pass first time. And he goes, okay, you're in. So I uh, was able to forge and get people to write letters for me, <laughs> and I did pass the test. And uh, then the next challenge, this is in 1979, the next challenge was to be able to find somebody that would let me build their pools. So I had a semester in high school of drafting, and... Uh, I 
came across a family that was interested in having me do the pool. They didn't know how to bid them. So we did it on what's called a cost plus. You take a percentage of the, of the cost of the pool and um, bought their kids ice cream at Foster's Freeze. I, I was doing everything I could to try to um, close this contract. And so I drew the pool. Everybody did free pool designs at that time. And it had multiple radius points, three different elevations. And, um, and they said, okay, we want you to build the pool. So the um, tractor operator shows up. And uh, we had designed it so his access into the yard was into the deep end of the pool, which made it a pretty steep, uh, going to be a pretty steep ramp. So they peel all the sod off and they go to lay the pool out. And so he comes over to me and he goes, "Uh, what did you measure this with a rubber measuring tape? And I said, why? He goes, well, the pool doesn't fit. And what I had done is I had measured the yard with a wheel. And so there was elevation changes. And so I had gained a few feet going across (laughs) the the yard. But my next problem now is I had to sit down on the fly in their backyard and find nine different inside and outside radius points and compress them so the pool would fit. Mm. That was an education in itself. So we get the pool laid out. They start digging. And then he hooks up with the power supply for the neighbor's pool jerks their time clock into the dirt and um, he gets a little bit further and the bottom of the uh, the soil, the support for the pool was like a mattress. It was so soggy. And then the hydraulic hose blew up and painted the entire backside of their house with hydraulic fluid uh, that on the house they had just painted. So I go back to the office and uh, my dad sees me and he, he says, what's wrong? I said, you know what? I just want to be done with this. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, I feel like, you know, just bringing the dirt back, resodding the yard, you know, and, and just being done. And he, and he, and I told him what happened and, and he says, uh, well, what's the worst that can happen? And I said, it's happening. The worst is happening right now. And, um, he says, well, how much would it be if everything fails? And I don't know, this was a long time ago. And I, I think I said $15,000 was my exposure. You know, if I had to like tear it out and do it over. And it was the only decent advice actually he ever gave me. And he said, well, Skip, they can't eat you. And um, so I went ahead. I completed that pool. Um, they probably sold pools for me for uh, seven or eight years after that during the ownership time. And my second pool won a design award. So that was, uh, that was my experience. So I learned a lot in the first pool, uh, especially uh, when you had never even seen one built. Not that you hadn't built one, but you'd never seen <laughs> one built. One. So uh, after that experience, like, what was it that made you go like, okay, I can keep doing this, even though you're sort of willing to give up on the first one? Well, uh the good news is I, I didn't give up. That was the number one learning experience is never give up. So, so that was my takeaway on that. And then we were having quite a bit of success, actually, the more confidence that I got. Mm-hmm. And probably the next life-changing experience was in the mid-80s. Um, and the, the images of that project, a lot of my projects are on my website, Skip Phillips LLC. But 
um, that particular project, as cool as it was, that wasn't the important part. It was who that I was actually doing the project for, which was Alan Paulson. He he owned uh, Gulfstream, and uh, so the the rumor was that Alan Paulson had actually gambled that entire company on the premise that he was going to come up with a new uh, design uh, that was requested by it by a potential owner. So Alan Paulson was already the best in the world at what he did. Everybody could pretty much agree with that. And this is a long time ago, but I think that the the criteria was, I think it was Dallas, Dubai, but it had to have a certain speed, a certain range, payload, all of that. Mm -hmm. And if you invest in the uh, development of an airplane like that, and then it fails, you know, it could be catastrophic. So he, he had enormous competition. He had Bombardier in, in Canada, the Canada Air uh, program. He had uh, Embraer in Brazil. He, I think uh, Lear and Citation are in Kansas. Uh, Dassault, the Falcon program, is in France. So he he does that. He he develops the plane and it hits, and it reestablishes Gulfstream as being the best in the world at what they did. Well, I had an opportunity to talk to him, and I knew this story because we were involved in aerospace and we actually sold stuff to. Gulfstream. But um, he lands in this twin turbine Sikorsky out in the front yard. The American flag was the windsock. It was a beautiful property. Had his own horse racing track. And so I asked him, I said, how do you do that? How do you make the decision to gamble that company on, on the com? And he says, well, I don't really have a choice. And I said, well, of course you did. You, you, you were the best in the world. He goes, yeah, but that's temporary. He says, the best, being the best is always temporary. And some people make the excuse that, um, that they don't want to invest in their company or they don't want to move ahead because of economic conditions. But he says, it's been my experience that there's always room for the best. doesn't matter what the economy is. And that my takeaway in that was I came away with a completely different attitude. I wanted to be the very best of what I did. And the good news was uh, there's only three parts of a pool. You know, there's the design, the structure, and the mechanical. So in order to be the best, you had to be the best at all three. So I, I focused on trying to improve all of those. But once again, there was no educational system to do it, which is what ultimately drove in the late 90s uh, me and two other people uh, creating the Genesis education program, which was uh, turned out to be uh, the only third-party ISET-approved educational system in the world for swimming pool design and construction, which gave us a chance to, um, you know, travel to give schools in Italy and France and and uh, Germany. We had six years in a row in Germany, uh, Australia, uh, Bali, Canada. So it was, uh, it was, it was quite a run. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. And I still have a contract with that company. We sold it. I still yeah. have a contract, uh, to work with them as an ambassador. So, yeah. So what, what, like, cause I'm trying to think of, you know, how you go about 
setting up a design for a pool. So like, what what's your thought process? How how do you approach that? <laughs> well, in before I I went to this educational program that I founded, mm-hmm. uh, it was intuitive. You know, it just so happened that even though my aptitude leaned more towards the technical hydraulics and things like that, uh, which is now helpful to me today, obviously now that I own pie tape again, but, um, but once, once we took, uh, the uh, educational program, when we broke it down and you learned that you have to also educate yourself in the vocabulary of other design professionals. So that would be architects, landscape architects, interior designers. So all of that terminology, rhythm, color, balance, texture, proportion, scale, uh, once you're able to, to uh, grasp the, the principles, the design principles, um, then you can start applying that to, to your own project. And it's, it's interesting, uh, because I began to realize that uh, that I actually kind of knew a lot of that stuff going in, but it was it was more intuitive. But the mm. educational system reinforced it. Yeah. So the uh, creative side and all that sort of came naturally to you, or was that harder for you than the technical side? Would you say? Well. On these vessels, you know, you've got the, the structural, the mechanical, and the, um, and the cosmetic. But uh, the, the soils report dictates the structural. Mm-hmm. So that's what engineers are for. Um, and even though you may bring an engineer for your first few projects to refine your line velocities and line sizing and, and pumps and job descriptions and turnover rates and things like that, there was really quite a few hydraulic classes that I could, that I could take. Um, but on the, on the cosmetic side, what I, what I did is I never looked at the pool industry because I considered what they were doing was primarily a failure. So I focused on trying to learn what was driving the true design print, uh, professionals, which would be the, the architects in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, and, there was, uh, there's always going to be a few that, you know, you, you don't like their style or something like that. And, and sometimes that hurdle seems, um, a pretty high because, uh, you know, you don't have the education. I, I had a high school education. Uh, but then I realized that arguably the three most influential architects in the history of the United States Thomas Jefferson did the um, University of uh, Virginia. Uh, Mies van der Rohe came to the United States from Germany, taught at Ivy League College, uh, designed the Seagram's building, and then obviously Frank Lloyd Wright. Everybody knows who that yeah. is. But there is n- there's no evidence that any of the three had an architectural degree. Mm. And I thought, well, I don't have an architectural degree, and if, and if I focus, I can do better than I think what a lot of these people are doing. And so that's... And all the vessels are different, you know. I just I don't repeat them. Uh, there's too many other opportunities to do cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. So you you said like as far as you were concerned, like the, what the industry was doing 
was failing as far as design and everything. Why, why did you consider to be that way? Well, it's a, it's, it's a lack of um, drive in the industry itself. And the bar is very, very low. And the pool industry did a good job of promoting their product as it's like a refrigerator. You know, you, you, you get the least expensive one. You, you know, one beside the other, there's really no difference. Uh, nobody was charging for design, but why should, why should they charge? I mean, it wasn't any good. So, um, but, but if, you, if you don't have the ability to charge for your time and your, um, and your intellect, uh, then it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a self-defeating cycle. Um, when I did uh, the, the project, just when we were starting Genesis and I did the project at our home, so now that pool's 25 years old, I guess. Um, at that point in, in my career, so this would have been in the late 90s, um, I had reached the point where I was traveling, uh, actually internationally, getting paid to do designs, and that was unheard of. It's kind of unheard of even today. But um, there's, there's another side effect of that where you start getting published. You know, you start... Uh, getting interviewed and people, uh, magazines and newspapers start uh, recognizing your work. So the Rob Report, which is the, uh, the Bible of conspicuous consumption, anybody that's ever seen that magazine, um, in 93 did an article on called uh, Club 21. And they picked the people that they thought were the most influential in the world in individual industries. And... Uh, to, and I really got a, a, a great head start on that because they picked, um, well, Alan Paulson for Gulfstream, the best business jets in the world. They picked Ferrari. Um, they picked uh, Cartier. They picked Armani for clothing. And they picked me for pools. And so that was rarefied air. You know. Yeah. So now, now you're starting to get interviewed. You're starting to... HDTV is interested in what you're doing. And um, I got a call from uh, Better Homes and Gardens. And they said, we want to interview you. You know, we see your vessels look different, but we want to know. Um, uh, we assume we assume the structure of mechanical is good, but we want to see what your philosophy is. Mm. And um, so we were going back and forth. They were based in New York, and, and I was gone a lot. And so finally we settled that instead of me going to New York, she was coming to California. So she walks in the backyard and she says, I've never seen anything like this before. I said, well, I could have saved you a trip. I've got three in the Hamptons right by you. You could have taken a look at those. So she takes out her notepad. And when, when you get interviewed on pools, uh, you can almost pre-write the questions. They always ask you the, the same things. So the first question she asked me, she says, how often do you use your pool? I said, uh, every day, actually, when I'm home. And she says, uh, it's January. I said, I know that. And she says, what's the temperature of the pool? And I said, 58. And she goes, you go swimming in a 58-degree pool? I said, you didn't ask me if I went swimming. You asked me if I used my pool. And she says, well, 
what's the difference? I said, well, didn't you say it when you walked in the backyard? Didn't you say you've never seen anything like that before? And the fact is, if I do a design and it doesn't have that kind of impact to where if you never got wet, it was a value to you, then I wasted your money and my time. And it completely changed the trajectory actually of the article and, and people began to recognize that it's not just the utilitarian value. There's the audible qualities, the reflective qualities, and all those things come into play. So, um, and, and I don't see much of that happening uh, in this area, uh, frankly, but, but that's not just because we're in East Texas, that's actually a global problem. It's not, it's not just here. There's a handful of companies that, you know, have taken the time to, to learn and educate themselves. And, and these vessels look a lot different than they did when we started Genesis 25 years ago. Yeah. So uh, I kind of want to go back a little bit because, you know, you've come to this point where, you know, you're being rated as one of the most influential people in the field or the most. And, you know, you're getting home and gardens and everybody. Uh, so... You mentioned, you know, most of these companies, it was, this is what the cost is. You're not paying anybody for design and stuff. So how do you convince somebody uh, to pay for that design in a field where it's just kind of paint by numbers? Well, first off, not everybody's your client. Not everybody cares. So I had one of the students ask me, they said, how many of uh, your clients do you get? I said, all of them. And they go, you bat a hundred percent every time you go out. And I said, no, I didn't say that. I said, I get all of my clients. Yeah. I go out on all the leads, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're client. Uh, they're, they're my client. So not everybody feels what I feel is important is important. And that's okay. That, that will still have a nice conversation. And, um, and hopefully we'll give them enough information so that they uh, can at least go through whatever process they want to go through and have it be successful. But that's why there's a lot of different cars, you know, yeah. and there's a vast range of, uh, of uh, pricing and, and detail. So yeah. it's not just economic. It's, it's also maybe it's just not important. Yeah. So, um, I guess, so when you're starting out, you said you, you know, had, had to fight to get, you know, one customer, you know, doing your best to really sell it and stuff. So from there, did you advertise yourself or was it just kind of word of mouth and the area you lived in sort of helped you grow the company or? Well, I was getting a lot of press. I, there was no reason for me to pay for ads. It was done for me. I, I, uh, one of, I watched one of the HDTV programs and three of the 10 top pools were mine. You know, so when you, when you're getting that kind of, uh, uh, profile, uh, I've had projects from Portugal to Singapore and, yeah. um, and so w we got a chance to do some really unique stuff and once again, that built on that stuff. And often the people in this industry would come to me and we would work. They would hire me to do their designs. I had a work permit in Canada for six years. Yeah. 
I, I guess this wasn't so much a question for once, you know, you're being shown on television and magazines. It's more of back in, I think you said 79, when you build this first pool. Uh, in an industry where it was all kind of just cookie cutter, was it just word of mouth from that pool that kind of led you to getting other jobs? Or Well, I had a benefit. I had three stores, too. So yeah. people were coming into the stores. I had plaques all over the walls showing uh, my work. So I could actually mark off disenfranchised pool owners and they would say, gee, I wish Skip would have done my pool. Or they'll tell their friends, hey, this, this guy has a store. You can go in and, and talk to him. So I did leverage what I had uh, for sure. But, but also keep in mind, it's like my friend in Canada, when we first started working together, he says, um, you know, we had five projects and one of the projects was getting close to being done. And he says, how long does it take when we work together for us to be able, I want to have that kind of impact that your portfolio has. How long does that take? How many projects does it take? I said, one, he goes one. I said, yeah, the one that we're finishing up right now, if you photograph that well, and you focus on the details that really resonate with your type of client and my type of client, it just takes one. So I, I could literally take my portfolio, but at that time it had taken me 30 years or something like that yeah. to develop. I said I could throw it away and I could start all over with these five and I do just fine. Yeah. So you, you said, you know, each one you do uh, was different. And that sort of helps you, you know, uh, stay interested, keep innovating and stuff. So what, how did you approach something to, keep, to change it up from the last one, make it more interesting for you to do? Well, it, it's interesting because some of the details that I see are so prevalent right now and really badly done, like fire bowls. Yeah. Um, the, the first time that I did fire bowls, was um, was in La Jolla, and it was in, I think, the mid-90s. So that's getting close to 30 years ago. And uh, it was a remodel, and I did a what's called a rainfall, uh, which has great audible qualities. And I, I actually decided, you know, I'm going to put the bowls in the water, <laughs> Now, nobody had ever done that before, as far as I knew. And so I moved these uh, fire bowls in the water, and I thought that we were missing a, a, a metal element. And uh, so I created this, this big arcing flat bar of stainless steel as a handrail going into the pool. And, um, and then I'd also experimented with a... With a uh, it's very common for people to raise the wall of their pool on one side for the excuse of squirting water back in. Um, but I decided to do that in a, more of a pyramid or a battered wall. Mm -hmm. And so I was experimenting with, with these things and I didn't know anybody had done them. I, I had never seen it <clears throat> any place else, but there's, there's just so many different things that you can do. This 90-degree coping detail, floating coping, where you're driving the water right up uh, underneath the coping. Um, 
I, I thought I was the one that had come up with it. And then I ended up getting this book called um, Hollywood Poolside. And it had all of these cool vessels from uh, the 20s and 30s primarily by the silent film stars. They were the ones that had the money to have pools when nobody else had pools. Yeah. And sure enough, I'm looking in there and there's uh, Wallace Reed, uh, 1920s movie star, and his pool has my 90-degree coping detail. <laughs> and then and then Clara Bow sitting by her pool, and she had the floating. You said, "How coping. did how did he steal that?" <laughs> nah, it, yeah, it was it was really. But you know what? Um, they say there's no really new new ideas, mm-hmm. and but the thing is, I didn't steal them from anybody. I didn't even know they existed, and it was things that I was trying to do to innovate because I thought they were cool. So one of yeah. the one of the interviews was, you know, what what do you like about pools what if you what's your simplest motivation i said i like the elevations low and the water levels high <laughs> that's it <laughs> so um you go from uh you know building pools and everything you uh buy back the company and you move it out here what, what's the decision process with that well the you know my dad passes away my stepmom remarries 10 months later. Um, this is in the late 90s. And, and uh, I was, you know, doing fine on my own, doing pools. And so um, then she passes away. And fi- I find out she's disinherited the whole family, her grandchildren, and given everything to this guy she just married. And um, it, it's it's a pretty sordid tale. It, it sounds like something out of Peyton Place, you know, that she... <laughs> Uh, this guy um, actually removed my father from his own grave in order he would not be buried next to my stepmom anymore, moved him. I don't even know what would possess somebody to think that that was a good idea. But, I was also like, I don't know how no, you get about doing that. It, it, no, it was, it, it was insanity, but he had control of the company, and I heard about that, and uh, within the first 30 days... Uh, after after she passed away, and I said, you know, this this isn't okay, mm-hmm. you know. So I made the decision to pursue recovering uh, the family trust, not on my behalf, but for my daughters. I have four daughters, and um, we basically won an an unwinnable case because we overturned a legitimate trust with an oral contract, which is un, unheard of. But this guy was was so repulsive that, and the things he had done were so outrageous that I think that that made the judge realize that you know that this family had never intended this to go like that. Mm-hmm. So we we recovered it. It was uh, placed in a in a trust. Uh, the state of California had a fiduciary that was managing it. Uh, well, that was a bad idea. It turns out she was stealing from my kids. Uh, she ended up going to prison. And then the next character that they brought in, uh, they just about run it into the ground at that point. And um, so they they said, we're going to dump the company. And this is like in 06 or something like that, just before the crash, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was I was furious. You know, because I I got together with Carrie, my wife, and I said, 
gosh, we, we put our home on the line. We did everything to try to recover this, and it's going down the tank, and there isn't anything we can do about it. And they're going to sell it. And I said, maybe we should buy it. And she goes, well, maybe we should. I said, you know what? I was, I was just spouting off. I, I, had, I didn't think that all the way through. She goes, well, why don't you think it all the way through? I said, okay, well, we'd have to put our home on the block again because we don't have the money to buy it. We'll have to be the high bidder uh, because we're a member of the family. If it fails, it's within two weeks of not making payroll. If it fails, uh, which is possible, we'll lose our home, but we'll lose it to the kids. They're going to get our house someday anyway, so maybe there's no risk. Mm-hmm. So we did. We actually were able to get the loans. We bought it, and I think it was a God thing because it, what a blessing it just took off after that. And we weren't involved for quite a while because we were busy raising our girls. And uh, uh, But the more we got involved in it, we saw some opportunities to really take that Alan Paulson approach. What, what would make this the best in the world? Because the product, there's almost nobody in the world that makes it. Mm-hmm. So uh, we, we got our ISO 17025 ILAC, the calibration lab status, completely revamped uh, the calibration room, ISO 9001, the management uh, system. So our clients like uh, Boeing and Pratt & Whitney and GE, and uh, if it's something that's round and spins fast, they, <laughs> you know, they, they typically... They want that spec. <laughs> well, they, they have our product, you know, they'll use our product, but half of the business is, is international, half of it's domestic. And um, we had a, uh, a fire, uh, uh, let's see, 14 months ago, completely gutted the building. So I thought we were done. I thought everything was going our way. And then five hours later, you know, we're done. And uh, I told Carrie, I said, well, we need three things. Uh, our insurance company that we'd only had for two weeks. So the insurance has to go through uh, our team, you don't go shopping for pie tape employees. You have to create them because yeah. nobody in the world is making what you make. And we need God on our side. And, and that's, that's what happened. So now it's, we got the building just the way we want it. We've got all new equipment and um, we're right on the final throws of doing the final details on that. And it's really turned out great. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've been in the new building. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is great, and we were able to do it just the way we would have wanted to had we been able to start over. But that wasn't possible at that time, and then we had no choice. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I think I'm out of intelligent questions, so if there's anything you'd like to end this with, uh, sure. go ahead. Well, I'm, I just feel blessed to be in East Texas. You know, we, uh, our family, uh, my daughters now are older, they've got children. Um, my son-in-laws work, uh, work with me there. We have a great group of people. Um, everybody here has been really friendly and helpful. And, and, um, so we're in the buckle of the Bible belt, which is the way we like it. And, and, um, you know, my girls kind of missed the beach because we we lived (laughs) in San Diego. So we were close to the beach, but we've been able to get some property in Florida on the Gulf coast. And, so they can go to the, they can go to the beach. They're just not going to California. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, thank you so much for the interview. It's thank been you. great. Thank I, you. I, I, I really enjoyed it. it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Oh, hi. You actually uh, made it to the end. Uh, not many people do that. Um, I guess you enjoyed it. If you enjoyed it, go ahead and uh, like and subscribe. Share it with people if you want to. And uh, just tune in next time because I'm always interviewing different people. Uh, thanks a lot. Have a good one.